I'm not going on trips. I don't even have money to date, right? It was just years of sacrifice and delayed gratification that then I just had to, you know, go wild. I had to spend some money just to feel good and go swing the other way a little bit. Welcome millionaires and future millionaires. You're listening to the Millionaires Unveiled podcast, the show where you'll hear the stories and interviews of everyday millionaires. We'll unveil their decisions, their strategies, and their portfolio allocation. Now to your host, Jace Mattinson. Welcome back to another episode of the Millionaires and Veb Podcast. This is episode number 346. Stace, it's almost March. Your favorite month of the year for March Madness. We have our own March Madness coming. <laughs> That's true. I do love March Madness. It is definitely basically another holiday in my house. But uh, yeah, it means that the babies are going to be coming this month or I guess in the month of March. But uh yeah gonna be a little bit of madness around here and uh you're hanging in there pretty good we have a lot of we have a lot of uh guests writing in worried about you but uh you're you're crushing it rightfully so he says i'm crushing it everything hurts and i'm dying but (laughs) it's a bear hunt right can't go over it can't go under it i just have to go through it but anyway i'm uh, i'm thankful that everybody's healthy yeah and i think i said listeners guests Whatever I said, but yeah, listeners. Uh, speaking of listeners, we got a, uh, a great review this last week. This uh, comes from Weekly Financial Motivation is the name, I guess. So I'm a new listener to the podcast. I thoroughly enjoy hearing the experience of, of different everyday millionaires each week. I'm training for a marathon in April, so I often listen to several episodes at once while I'm logging 10, 15, 20 miles at once. Thanks for keeping me company on my long runs and for keeping me motivated towards achieving my family's financial goals i hope to be a guest of the podcast in the next seven to ten years so thanks for that if you have left a rating review we'd love to have you do so on either apple itunes or on spotify in fact spotify is cranking up we've got a lot of y'all following the show on there and continuing to listen appreciate that spotify has been a great partner for uh, quite some time also we just got uh, a note on SpeakPipe. In fact, on our website, if you want, uh, you can go and record a question to ask a millionaire. And uh, we just got it over the weekend, but I will play it probably for a few guests that we have coming up in the future. Maybe we'll play it on the show and and uh, on the intro here the next little bit and, and give a little synopsis and maybe throw in some answers of our own. But that is available on our website via SpeakPipe. So, if you've got a question you want to ask any of the millionaires directly via voice, go ahead and uh, send the recording. It goes directly to us. On today's show, we have David. And uh, David's an interesting an interesting dude. In fact, uh, he's got a net worth of $17-ish million, and that's depending on the valuation of his company. He started out as, uh, actually started out working at McDonald's. And... Uh, get into that and processes and whatnot for business, which is a really great conversation. But yeah, went from working at McDonald's to uh, being an engineer to being an entrepreneur and investing in real estate. And really most of his net worth at this point is is tied up in a a software company that he is uh, a co-founder of and part owner. And uh, yeah, Dave is cool dude. In fact, he invited us on the show to go out to the races. And uh, sure enough, right after we quartered the next few weeks, uh, My son and I were out hanging out with him uh, on the track. So uh, 
that was pretty fun and appreciate David for uh, hosting us. And yeah, now you're driving Ferrari and Tesla and living the dream. So uh, no, not our son. He's only four. <laughs> no, CJ was driving the cars. I mean, he sat in them and he thought he was. But uh, yeah, he thinks I'm buying one tomorrow. But uh, you know, ain't about that. I think right after we went and did that, I actually got him the, the bus, the ba- the big van to fit the whole family. So <laughs> not quite the Ferrari he thought he was dreaming about, but maybe one day. He uh, he has a little affinity for cars, that little boy, but we had a good time. So uh, yeah, great, uh, gr- going to be a great episode with David, a really unique story. And, uh, you know, we've had several requests for some deck of millionaires and uh, we got a few coming up. And I will throw this out there because we just recorded, finally got it in the books. I didn't have him on for episode 300 to be worth 300 million, but did record. And I'm not really sure if he's worth 400 or 500. It's kind of a vague question. It's kind of it's kind of hard with the business valuations, whatever. But he's definitely over 300, so that episode will be coming up. Uh, I think I'll probably, I think maybe we'll try to do it around 350. We'll see. But uh, finally got our our 300 plus. Uh, millionaire for episode 300 just a little late but it's all good better late than never so look forward to that coming up here uh in the next little bit yeah we, we gotta we gotta have some more people making some more money so we can get to 400 and- <laughs> hey one of these days you know i i mean one of these days you know i i, I just recently met i think it's i think it's my fifth billionaire now one of these days, I'm going to have the cojones to ask one of these billionaires that I've met to come on the show, too. But uh, <laughs> at, at any rate, they, uh, they're they all amazing people. And and one of them, I will note, has, has been very gracious. And I think we did an episode on this a while back. Uh, he was very gracious in, in giving. He's been been very undercover billionaire, former client, blah, blah, blah. But he, he, uh, he was willing enough to at least give the breakdown of his asset allocation, which he knew I had, but being a client at one point, but you know, he ended up sending it to, sending it to me anyway, high level after, uh, cause I haven't been working with him in a few years, but anyway, we'll, uh, we'll keep, we'll keep calling out as always, uh, for, for new millionaire interviewees. But yeah, I guess episode 400 is coming not too far down the road. And, uh, we'll definitely need to get, try to get somebody that's at 400. That'd be cool. Or 450 or 500 or whatever. Cause it's just hard to like hit the mark at 400. But, uh, those episodes seem to be very interesting and uh, very well received. So, very different conversation for sure. But, and uh, without any further delay, let's get in the interview with David. David, you want to just give us a little about your background and what you're up to now? Yeah. So, I graduated college as an engineer, and I was going to work a W two job nine to five. Thank goodness, my dad's friend Bill gave me the four hour work week when I was in high school. So. Even though I was continuing this path on engineering, I knew that there was an option out there that instead of trading my time for money, that I could live this amazing life that didn't require me to work you know, 40 hours per week. So that was back in 2017. And I went to work for an entrepreneur, uh, which was an amazing learning experience. And I started as a software developer. I was the tech support. I was the trainer for this small company, which afforded me the ability to learn a lot. And he had real estate investments. And I was thinking, well, I want to retire by 40. I know he wants to retire by 40, but I'm investing all of my, you know, 50% of my salary, $50,000 a year 
uh, into the stock market. And he said that he got those rentals because if you buy them right and you manage them well, unlike the stock market that goes up and down, like those are actually going to throw off predictive cash flow. And that's going to get him to his goal of retiring by the age of 40. So I felt like I was actually very intrigued by that. And so I switched my strategy to look for a brand new real estate deal. But nothing that I would look at on Zillow uh, was actually going to cash flow. And so I asked him, I was like, how'd you find these great deals? And he's like, well, back in 20, you know, 2009, after the crash, you know, you could find some really amazing deals. And I was like, what? Okay, so you're saying I can't do this now? He's like, that's not what I'm saying, but it's, it might be pretty hard for you. So I, I felt a little discouraged, but you know, you know, fast forward today, um, I, I was able to find some off-market deals that did cash flow uh, after I went to a meetup. And so that got me really excited. And uh, I got my very first deal in 2018. And I still have it to this day. And I've got 14 rental properties. And they're worth about $2.6 million. And I've got a $1.6 million uh, in equity position. And what's amazing is a huge amount of that was created by finding really great deals and then just holding them for a few years. So they cash flow $80,000 a year, you know, after the mortgage taxes and insurance, but you know, that's allowed me to become financially free. And along the way, I actually created this tool, you know, everybody was saying like, "Go oh, look for these rundown houses and look up the owner and send him a piece of mail that says, "Do you want to sell your house?" And I was doing that, uh, but I was like, there should be an app for this. And so I made an app that when you see a rundown house, you can pin it. It tells you who owns the house and then it'll send a piece of mail to the owner. And that was never intended to be a business, but it's actually you know taken off quite nicely, helped people close 10,000 deals in all 50 states since I created it about seven years ago. And so that's become my primary income stream. And, and the real estate stuff, you know, I kind of stopped buying for a while when that software took off, but uh, happy to share some more of those details. Um, but it's definitely been a vastly different life, you know, when I started seven years ago versus now and, and an amazing journey I'm excited to dive into. Yeah, man. I can't wait to, to get into some of these details. But before we do, what's your net worth today? Vast majority of my net worth is tied up in my software company. So those valuations can vary from 10x income, and in which were about $13 million per year, which would mean $130 million that I own half of. But I like to take a more conservative approach. I know one of our competitors in the space, PropStream, sold for $170 million. And uh, one of their resumes came across my desk, said they were doing about 60 million. So that would only be like a 3X multiple. So if you're conservative, my net worth is, uh, you know, the 1.6 million of rental equity plus maybe 15 million on the software side. So let's take the conservative approach and, and put those together for about 17 and a half million. Nice, man. That's awesome. Congrats. Thank and you. And do you have anything outside of essentially the software business and those rental properties still have money in the market or not anymore? I wouldn't consider that a serious investment. You know, I've got a quarter million dollars in the market and half of it's Tesla stock and half of it's just like, you know, VTI, boring interest index fund. And uh, everything else is, uh, I probably have like 1.6 million in cash in the, in the business. And then myself about a half million dollars in cash. And then I own a quarter million dollar Ferrari cash. And today marks the day that I just bought my first brand new 
purpose-built race car. So I'm very excited for that. It was $120,000. Gee, this is sweet. I love it. So you bought a Ferrari cash, which is crazy. I mean, most people that buy Ferraris don't do that. And then a race car as well on top of that. So you're a car guy. Yeah. Well, just like your past guest in uh, 329, Lucas said, there's not actually a ton of money in his uh, bank account because he's actively investing things. And, and one of the reasons why I bought the Ferrari cash was because once I had gone from living a very, very restrictive life for years in my 20s, where I had three roommates, I had a rusty Honda Accord, and I was just toiling away for this entrepreneur I worked at for years, then myself for years. And uh, when I started to actually make some money, like our trajectory at Deal Machine was nothing for one year, 20,000, then 1.3 million, then 6 million, then 9 million, then 12 million in revenue. So like when that money started coming in, it started coming in quick and I was spending a lot of money on things that weren't smart, but it felt great. You know, it's like after a year of making good, uh, years of making good decisions, it felt great to waste money. I, I socked the, the money away in the Ferrari because I was like, at least this will hold its value. Like I, I just don't want to waste any more money. Uh, so I can get into some of that, but you know, some 90,000 in art and a bunch of probably $120,000 in furniture that doesn't hold its value. And it, it, the money was just going out. So I, I had to sock it away in some. <laughs> so you were, you were burning through some of that cash, newfound cash in what you thought were good investments or assets, or it was just, Hey, I'm furnishing a place that oh, I no. live in or. Oh no, no, no. So it was like eight years of sacrifice, right? Like I, I, I couldn't date. I couldn't bring a girl home. You got three roommates as an adult. I'm not going on trips. I don't even have money to date, right? It was just years of sacrifice and delayed gratification that then I just had to you know, go wild. I had to spend some money just to feel good and go swing the other way a little bit. It was like some pent up demand, huh? Pent up. That's exactly right. Nice. So walk us through a little bit. I mean, you go, you go on this journey. At what point did you decide that, Hey, I'm going to quit this job as an engineer and I'm going to roll the dice. And before I get into that question real quick, did you bootstrap your, your software company? It is bootstrapped. Yep. I nice. Own, yeah. 50% of it. And the other person is my best friend that was an even better software developer than me. So when I had the idea and I knew people wanted it, cause it wasn't even meant to be a business, but I, when people started to download it and I'll, I'll give you the, the reason why I even put it on the app store, I was like, I, I need somebody to make this look better. It does not look good. It's just, it's functional. I'm a very yeah. functional guy, but I didn't know how to make it look good. That's cool. So did you, did you walk away from your job and make that? I mean, there's a lot of people out there right now, you know, talking about, Hey, I'm going to go into be an entrepreneur, but if I do, I mean, I'm leaving this job or walk us through kind of the, 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 the mental and emotional kind of aspect of, of what you did there. Mm hmm. So I actually went to work for Accenture right after engineering school, which is one of the big four consulting firms. And my client, uh, I, I was making $70,000 a year there. So that was better than anybody else who just graduated college. And that was in 2012 is when I graduated. So I was really happy with that job. But it was in a building with no windows at a U.S. postal office facility. And we were augmenting their team. And so it was just kind of like, a very hostile environment because they had their own software development team that didn't like us because we were like hustling and working hard and, and they were like sleeping at their desks. Right. And so, um, but I, I was like really motivated to try and, uh, make a name for myself and, and do well there. And I actually even volunteered. The post office was like converting this new development technology. And I like volunteered to give a presentation on it. And my boss at Accenture, like kind of just 
took me by the scruff and was like, do not ever volunteer for anything like that again. You could make us look so bad. And so that was one of those moments where I was like, all right, I'm going to start working on a side project. And in, in, in college, I was the, I was in charge of recruitment for a fraternity. This was like an anti fraternity. It was not about drinking. We were a sober house. Um, but we were more focused on beating everyone in athletics, beating everyone in academics and still being the coolest, even though we didn't drink. So, you know, I think we probably got second place out of all those categories. So we did a decent job and the recruitment was not hand the beer and like, go ahead and, uh, you know, ask somebody to join, but it was systematic. We took all the best practices from the Girl Scouts, the U.S. military, some of the greatest recruiting organizations in the world. And it was based on this book that we followed. And when I had my uh, internships, I realized everything about this recruitment process is great, except there's not a recruitment tool. So I made it as a side project and I sold it to that company who wrote that book for $10,000. And then I worked for that entrepreneur for a couple of years after that, where I learned a ton and actually took a pay cut down to $50,000 so that I could work for him and learn from him. And so that is where I was working 80 hours a week. I was the tech support, the trainer, because they had never started a technology company before. I mean, and I hadn't either, but I, I knew how to develop you know, basic CRM. So that is the company I worked for for a couple of years. And I learned a ton, but eventually, you know, I was just missing out on life. And I felt like, Every time my phone rang, it would be at 11 p.m. and I would have to answer it and fix the tech support or just help the person through a tech issue. And so I actually slept with my computer under my pillow so I, I could pull that thing out, answer that call and go back to sleep. Or uh, at my best friend's wedding, I got the call and I was like, where can I go take this before you know it goes to voicemail and it's so loud. And so I get in my car, I actually had a routine where I'd push the steering wheel in, recline the seat back so that I have space to open my laptop, connect it to my hotspot, and then answer that tech issue, which you know was, was a great learning experience. But my best friend's wife really didn't see it that way. She's like, they need to hire some more people. And I was like, oh, you just don't get it. I, I just want to do everything possible to like learn to be successful. But then afterwards, I thought, all right, I think I've learned as much as I can. And if I'm going to work this hard, it ought to be for me instead. So then, of course, I went on to find the, the real estate deal, and that's how that happened. How long after you got your first real estate deal did you feel confident to leave your job? So I actually got my first real estate deal. I was looking around for a really heavily discounted off-market property, but there was this pit in my stomach every time I might get a call back from my mail that I don't know how to actually you know finish closing the deal because I've never done this before. So what I decided to do was go look at a listed property that was on the market for nine, you know, nine months, a long time, and uh, got an okay deal on it. But I could buy it with a traditional mortgage with 5% down. And so I rented out rooms to my coworkers. So that was technically my first deal while I still had the job. And they paid me $550 a bedroom each. And there was three of them. And then my mortgage payment was $1,300 with the taxes and insurance. So after that move, then I was going to go ahead and quit my job because that would cover my living expenses and give me at least $200 more than what my mortgage payment was. And I probably tried to quit like a month after that, but my software company that I worked for had no backup software engineers. And so they're like, whoa, wait, 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 wait. And then they offered to pay me four times my salary to stay an extra three months. And thank goodness they did because it wasn't until at least a year and a half after that, 
that I was able to actually pay myself from my business efforts doing the real estate deals and then ultimately from the software company that I realized other people wanted to use this, this software widget I created for finding those rundown houses and getting in contact with the owners. Okay. So you're, you're a year and a half in on real estate deals and your software business before you make the jump. No, I made the jump right away. I had my bank account full of cash because they paid me four times my salary to stay three extra months. And it wasn't until a year and a half later that I was actually able to pay myself from my business efforts. Got it. Got it. Okay. Awesome. So I'd love to back up a little bit and talk more about maybe your growing up experience. So what was your exposure like growing up to investing real estate and entrepreneurship? Yeah. So I grew up in a very conservative house where both my parents had very traditional, you know, go get a degree and then go get a job and then put your money with Edward Jones investments and retire, you know, at the age of 65. So whenever I had the idea to get into real estate investments, my parents were absolutely fearful that I was going to throw my hard work getting an engineering degree away. And in fact, they, they sat me down and they said, you know, we've talked to these people that we know that have had, you know, this person at our church had a rental property that they inherited and the tenant totally trashed the house and they didn't have insurance. So it was just a complete disaster. Every story like that was what they were telling me. And I appreciated that they cared for me, but thank God I knew this guy I worked for has done it successfully. I ended up going to a meetup where a bunch of people are doing it successfully. And that really illustrated, I, I was just like, you know, thank you so much, but I've got to do this because I'm sure that it's possible. I, I know people that are possible. You're talking with people that have not done it successfully because they were an accidental landlord. So that was why I knew it was possible. And I had no, you know, background in real estate investing. In fact, you know, any background that I had was against real estate investing. Do you consider yourself more of a businessman or of a real estate investor then at this point? Because it seems like a lot of your net worth is tied up in this in this app that you developed, correct? Yeah. You know, I, I've never put businessman at the end of my title, but I'm okay with it, you know? <laughs> Maybe I'm using the wrong terms. I always say the wrong things. <laughs> Somebody just asked me downstairs when I before this podcast, I just got a new microphone set up and I had an adapter that arrived from Amazon. So I went down to go get it so I could plug in these headphones and hear you and myself. And somebody was like, are you, are you David, the influencer? And I was like, I have an Instagram account. Like, is that what you mean? Like, I, I guess I am an influencer, but I same with businessman. It's not a title that I've called myself before. And I, uh, you know, maybe I will, maybe I'll change my bio. I'm here for it. I'm here for yeah. the new bio. All right. Okay. So start this app. You've got these real rental properties. Are you invested in multifamily? Are these single family homes? What type of real estate are you investing in right now? Great question. So all of my properties, 14 single family homes in Indianapolis that rent for an average of about 800 per month. And uh, they all like meet the 1% rule, which means if they're worth a hundred thousand, they would rent for a thousand a month. So, and, and so hope that answers your question. Yeah. Wh why Indianapolis? You're here oh, in Texas. I used to live there. Yeah. So oh. I used to live there. Uh, for, I lived there for seven years when I was starting my business. I lived there. Most of my employees, we have 28 employees at Deal Machine and, and most of them live there because I hired them while I lived there. All right. You got 28 employees in, in, over there in, in 
Indianapolis. Where are your sights on this company? Are you trying to grow it to a certain certain growth mark? Yeah, so we're seven years in so far. And when we first started the company, my business partner and I, his name is also Dave, when we went from $20,000 to $1.3 million in revenue, we still had no employees. And he was saying that he didn't want to hire any employees. He didn't like the idea of being responsible for somebody else. But eventually, we might have been dropping the ball on answering customer support, for example. So we ended up having to do that. And our opinion on hiring somebody totally changed because we saw what a service that was to our customers and to us to not have to go do that work and focus on being more strategic or building a new system or part of the app, you know, that only we can do. So that was one time where, you know, we really changed. And, and I think what our expectations are of the company is always changing. We, I remember when we first started, we thought doing a million dollars a year in revenue would be absolutely life-changing. And it was, but I mean, now, you know, we're 10 times that and we never even expected it. And so um, we're, we're not in like a, a hurry to, you know, sell the company. I mean, one day, I mean, I'm going to die. We're all going to die. So the company needs to be uh, able to continue on and be in good hands. And, you know, I, I would say open to that maybe 10 years into the journey and we're still building it to make sure that it continues to grow. Nice. And what about your uh, real estate portfolio? Are you planning to grow that to a certain number of units? Or are you happy where you are? Yeah, I, I bought five this year after I didn't buy any for a while because, you know, I did like nine deals and then the software company went, you know, from one to six million dollars. So I thought I should focus on the software company instead of buying the rentals. But three years later, the software company had its first, you know, down year, which gave me a lot of anxiety. And then I looked over at the rental properties and those nine properties I had had appreciated a million dollars without me doing anything in addition to cash flowing every year. So I was like, man, I should, I should actually, you know, fi fix the software company, make sure that's continuing in an upward direction. And when I do that, I'm going to put extra cash into more real estate investments because I would feel a lot less anxiety if, you know, I had twice as much cash flow coming in from those rentals because they're, they're maybe a bit more stable than a business. And I felt like, that was a reason to go ahead and find more real estate deals this year. And uh, thankfully, the software company is doing great. And even with high mortgage uh, rates, I've been able to find some really great real estate deals too. I mean, you know, a guy with a nap, that helps. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> That's wonderful. But the Are you stories, uh, I've always been uh, a huge fan of like, like I, it, I have two businesses, the real estate side and the, the deal machine side, but thankfully they're kind of similar because the stories that I get, they help me produce content to help my you know, members at Deal Machine learn things or help me explain things in a way that they can understand. So I've been very thankful for that. And um, you know that even though I'm a big fan of staying focused, I think those two are two separate businesses, but they've kind of been uh, nice to help each other out in that way. For sure. And I'd love to hear a little bit more about your, your podcast as well. But last question about your your properties before that, are you managing those yourselves or do you yourself, or do you have a management company? So I manage it myself. I have an assistant at deal machine. And so she's, she's full time, just scanning my inbox, getting my mail, handling my to-do list. And so even though I'm out of state now, I've continued to buy in Indianapolis because I think that I know the market well there. And there's already handymen that are used to working on my properties that I can call. 
and my assistant lives there. So she puts on a mojo lockbox, which is a type of lockbox where you can let people do a self-showing by they submit their debit card or driver's license. So in terms of self-managing, I mean, I put the listing on Zillow rental property manager, and then people message to see the property. They sign up and do that themselves, and then they apply. And then, so I just look at it and approve it. And most of the properties have virtually no maintenance because they've all been renovated by me, you know, so there it, it self-managing has been fairly low maintenance. Um, the, the assistant doing a random errand or to put the lockbox on is, uh, I guess the, the only thing that I would struggle with if I didn't have, you know, somebody there on the ground. And I see, do you think there's a point, you know, you have 14 single families. I mean, do you envision yourself moving from single family to multifamily and making that trajectory and that jump or, Hey, single family has been working and might as well just continue to scale up portfolio, you know, as, as you can. Yeah. I, I definitely want to stay with the, the single family. And I know that people have huge stories about multifamily, but I think that there's a lot of shiny objects and I want my life to be as simple as possible. So I am going to continue buying the same asset class that I have been because that's worked out pretty well for me, you know, holding nine properties for five years and got the million dollars of appreciation is been pretty good. I'm pretty happy with that. Um, I even tried Airbnb for one property, but I realized that's not making my life simple. That's a whole different game that hinges around managing a cleaning person. That's like the most important part of that business. And if they mess up, and leave a hair on the pillow, then you lose your super host status, then you lose your bookings. And uh, I believe there's been some Airbnb turmoil this year, you know, so it's, it's been nice just to uh, convert that back to a long term rental, and just get all the rentals on the same schedule and maintenance and routine. How do you think about risk and, and maybe even geographic risk with most of your portfolio in, in one area, one location, one city in the country? I mean, Indianapolis and most Midwest markets, they are kind of like a bond and they just kind of keep climbing up. They're not really susceptible in what I've experienced to huge fluctuations. So I, I don't know. I, I, I buy deals that are good deals. So by the time I'm all in, I've only paid 75 or 80% of what the property's actually worth. And they all cash flow with a decent size margin. And so that's how I would actually mitigate risk is just buying great deals, making sure they have cash flow. And uh, that's this, the geography is not uh, like, I, I don't think that diversifying to Memphis, Tennessee, as well as Indianapolis would, would help me out at all. I think it would actually hurt because it would take more of my active time to find, figure out, you know, what stuff's worth in Memphis, evaluate the deal, get the handyman in, and get the management done there. You know what I'm saying? So I just, I just like to keep them all in one place. No, that's fair. In, in terms of, you know, as running a business, I mean, how do you think about pulling chips off the table? And what I mean by that now, before you sell and have an exit is how much to reinvest in your business versus peel off and put into real estate, for example. Oh yeah. So we always use the book profit first. So it actually has a table. How big's your business? Okay. This is much, this is how much you should actually put into your bank account. The whole story of Profit First, if you're not familiar by Mike Michalowicz, is that he burned himself out by working and working and working and toiling away and spending time away from his family all for them, but not spending time with them now working on this stuff that never ended up producing results for his family. So instead of burning out, 
he mapped out what the best way is to do for pulling money off of your company. And if you are not able to pull that much money off of your company, then you need to change something about your company so that you could pay yourself what you deserve. You took the risk to start the business. So you earn the dividends every single month. Uh, and to your, answer your question, you know, we have always taken basically 20% of every dollar that comes in as profit and then 15% of every dollar that comes in to pay the taxes on that profit. So basically, if we make 100 bucks, 35 of it gets pulled out of the business account and put over into my business partners and I's personal account. That's awesome. Is there, a, is there another car purchase in your future? Well, today, I just bought a Janetta GTA uh, car, and you wouldn't know what that is because it's a race car only. They don't, they don't make street cars. So I think I'm good on cars for a while. <laughs> okay. Right, four cars. So uh oh, four yeah. cars. What the are the other ones? The, the Tesla Model S. Uh, I have the Ferrari four five eight, which has been a dream come true. When you know, when I was um, working on growing Deal Machine, we were maybe six or nine million per year. Um, I had hired a coach, very positive influence on me, and we were in this mastermind group of twelve other entrepreneurs that were doing 10 million a year at least, but I was a young person in the group that wasn't doing quite 10 million. And I noticed some other people in the groups drove these cool McLarens and I was, I got a ride from one of them in San Diego when we were all meeting there and I was blown away and I was like, I just didn't know that this was in my realm of possibility, but you're like my peer, you know what I mean? And my coach was like, yeah, you could buy it now, but I'm gonna encourage you to wait and tie it to a special milestone. So about nine months later, we did our first month with a million dollars per in the in the month of revenue. And so that's when I decided to pull the trigger. And so right after that was actually a very scary time because I overhired. I added 20 employees that I thought would drive my business forward. But at the same time, you know, some of our leads dropped off and of course our expenses rose up. So what was a very profitable business went to zero profit, Jace. And that was really uh, a time where I, I couldn't sleep well. I was wondering, am I going to need to sell the Ferrari? Am I going to need, am I going to crush my company culture if I have to let these people go who just joined the team? And so I, I didn't really do any of that. I kind of stayed steady and, and got out of that situation um, a, after about kind of a year of scratching my head and trying to figure out how to make the software company grow again. But, um, you know, two years later after that, uh, I was showing my friend Mike this Ferrari that obviously meant something to me now. It's more than just a car. Um, but I actually went over a curb and crashed it with my friend Mike in the car uh, just a little bit. But, you know, these things are kind of expensive to fix. And uh, the dealer was like, hey, we, we could just give you this other Ferrari 458 that we're selling and we'll buy the one from you that's, needing some repairs and that way you have a working car right away but i was like no like i need to actually you know this car means something to me so i'll wait to fix it yeah and then uh, i i moved to austin texas we've got some great racetracks and i tried you know taking it to the racetrack to kind of overcome my fear of how i had crashed it so i've done like 250 laps with it uh, at circuit of the americas and so that that's got me into racing and i've kind of uh i've kind of pushed the car as far as that street car is able to go. And so I, I, I then got a, a Miata race car, which is super low cost, great for learning on. And now I bought like kind of the next level up, which is that Janetta. So 
that's that's uh something i've kind of fallen in love with and 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 how that car has some meaning beyond just like being a car and i would never plan on selling it actually it just means a lot to me what a great story i uh you know i've been to coda several times for either concerts or we like to go ride our bikes at coda but i'm going to think of you now actually driving a car <laughs> because i've never known anyone who actually races at circuit of the america so that that's a very interesting hobby yeah it's been almost like an addiction and um the reason why i think i fell in love with it was when i was going through that period of anxiety my friend gary invited me to drive a 500 dollar car in a 24-hour race and i was like yeah absolutely and when i did that race I had never driven a racetrack on a, I had never driven a car on a racetrack before, never been in that car. And I was so slow, but the fact that there was so much going on pushed all the other concerns out of my mind because I had to actually be present. And I felt like there's very few things in life that require you to fully be present where you can't get away with letting your mind wander. And so that's like, I think one reason why it was so appealing to me. And if you ever wanted a ride, uh, I would be happy to give you one next time I go out to Circuit of the Americas. Yes, I am in. And I'll, we'll take some pictures for our, our son that's turning four tomorrow. He's obsessed. Oh, that with, would be so cool. <laughs> with race cars. Happy birthday to him. Actually, actually, he wanted to go see a, see a, like a race car race for a, a gift or something. Or maybe we were talking about for one what? of our dates. Yeah, well, then I looked it up and saw how expensive going to see <laughs> going to see a, a race is there. They're like, it's like 700 bucks a ticket. He's, I love for him Formula very much. One it is, yeah. Are there other races you can go see? Yes, I actually have a Miata race that you can come to for free and I'll, we'll give you guys free lunch. Okay, we're in. I love it. Amazing. So, okay, you talked about how you basically spent no money for eight years, grinded hard, ground hard. I don't know. <laughs> you hit it hard. And then, you know, things flip, you buy this Ferrari. Is that the same time that your lifestyle increased? I'd love to talk a little bit about how your lifestyle changed when you weren't spending much money then a lot and then trying to rein it back in. If you are trying to rein it back in, or maybe you're, you're good with where it is. Yeah. So on, on the seven year journey of, you know, a after all, okay. So basically there was like five years of working at Accenture, saving 50%, and then working for that entrepreneur, saving 50% of even my reduced salary. And then there was uh, the start of Deal Machine, and that was seven years ago. There, you know, it was $20,000 the first year, a million dollars the second year. And in that year, I was probably paying myself, you know, $50,000 a year, because most of the money didn't come till the end of the year when it st things started to blow up. So that's like, seven total years of like restrictive living, you know, where I'm not going on dates, I'm not going on trips, just working a lot. So then it was probably that eighth year, it was like 2018, 2019, where there was money that I could pay myself. And I bought a $350,000 house. Couldn't believe that. It was in a pretty gentrifying neighborhood. And like six months later, there was a uh, shooting. And so I felt like the girl I was dating that was living with me that wouldn't be a safe place for us to stay anymore. So my business partner, he leapfrogged me and he bought an $800,000 house. And I was like, well, I'm gonna look around. And then I ended up buying like a $1.2 million house. And so 
that that was done uh, a couple, like a year or so before I bought the Ferrari. So in the house, then there's a lot of blank walls. It was like 6,000 square feet. So, you know, I thought I want to get one really impressive piece of art to fill the wall that you see when you first walk in. So my girlfriend and I, at the time, we went to an art gallery and we ended up talking and they ended up coming to the house. Now they showed up at the house with a truckload of art, which was amazing. They could put it in the actual space so that you could see how it looked. And somehow my girlfriend ended up talking about, well, let's see another piece over on this wall and this wall and this wall. And so what started out to be one piece ended up being uh, seven or eight pieces in for $90,000 total. So, you know, and I asked the guy, I was like, will I be able to resell this? And he's like, oh yeah, 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 yeah. I've even got certificates and say what the value is and all that. Uh, and then of course, buying furniture for a big house, you know, is expensive. A, a lot of the stuff that we went into was like restoration hardware and um, our house. That was about, you know, 80% of it. And then there were a couple of other pieces that were not from those like big box, like name brands. And so, um, you know, a few years later when I ended up selling the house, cause I wanted to move to Austin, the, uh, I tried to sell the furniture, but nobody would take it for more than 20 cents on the dollar. It's a good thing. I like the furniture. So I just put it in storage and then same thing with the art. It just didn't have a market to sell it. And so I just decided to put it in storage because thankfully I actually do really like all that stuff. And that's ultimately what matters. Um, but the, the place I'm in now is just not as big, you know? So one day, whenever I, uh, you know, do sell my company and get a $12 million house on Lake Austin, then I'll bring the furniture and the art back out. But until then, it's going to stay safe in my storage facility. <laughs> oh, wow. You know, I have to say, one of our favorite places in Austin is to go look out over all those homes. It's um, gorgeous. I love back. the lake so much. Yeah. Stunning. Well, that's great. Have you liked it here? Oh yeah, I, I it just like couldn't be a better place. Austin is the best city for me to live. There's not a question. Couldn't think of another place to be better. One of the things in Indianapolis that I was missing was like friends that got what I was doing, friends that I could speak to about issues I was having or wins that I was having and really get it. And so I joined an organization called YPO, Young Presidents Organization. So it's every city has a chapter if you don't know. And you have to be doing uh, the requirement, I think, is like 10, 12, 13 million dollars a year uh, if you have a software company. So I joined YPO, absolutely loved it. And then when I moved to Austin, you don't even need to be in YPO because there's so many entrepreneurs. Like there's this guy named Nick Gray, and he created this book called The Two Hour Cocktail Party. And I have been to 12 of these cocktail parties, and every single one is like, somebody who survived cancer and wrote a best-selling book or sold their company for a hundred million dollars. And these are free events. Like these are just people and you're not paying to be a member of anything. And that's one of the reasons why Austin is absolutely so incredible. And it also plays well into, you know, things I like to do. I, I got really into wake surfing and also race car driving. So we've got one of the best tracks in the world. We've also got this small club track that's like a super low cost way of getting better at racing. So I'm just like elated. I mean, I couldn't think of a better city for me. You and Jace are on the same wavelength. I, I don't think I've ever heard anyone else talk about their love for Austin the same as he has. So <laughs> you guys are covering the same club. And the food is incredible. 
I was just about to mention we got the best tacos on earth and the best barbecue. So, I, dude, I, I had barbecue before I moved to Austin, but I did not actually have any barbecue since I've lived here. I thought that was interesting. But um, one of the things that I started doing when I was in Austin was that was it was kind of like representative of me getting out of this kind of mental funk when my company stopped growing my self-worth like went in the toilet, you know, and I kind of lost my personal confidence. And so to get out of that, I changed my environment and I took a mental toughness challenge called 75 hard. And it's like a 75 days straight of doing like two 45 minute workouts a day, gallon of water a day, take a progress picture every day, read a book every day. And if you miss one single day, you have to start all the way over. So in doing that, you know, I started just working with a coach. So I didn't have to think about what my workout was going to be. Uh, twice a day. And he told me after I finished this challenge, he's like, man, all my clients do bodybuilding, but you are just like a lifestyle client, but you do everything I say without complaint and with a hundred percent compliance. And I was like, man, if these guys are doing competitions and I'm better than them at the discipline, sign me up. And so I actually, uh, you know, then started, you know, dieting and training for a bodybuilding contest and I could get one cheat meal per week. And so I would always pick like just try to pick the most incredible restaurant. Cause I only got one a week, you know what I'm saying? So I wanted to make it count. So my favorite one is pasta bar. Haven't tried a ton of the tacos, but, um, I really like pasta bar. They have like a 10 course omasake, uh, style where there's 10 people in the whole restaurant and they serve you all over the course of like two or three hours. Um, I like Hestia's omasake. And then also, oh, I just went to Bacalar. It's in, uh, the 44 East building. So good. That's cool. Well, let's uh, let's wrap up with some rapid fire questions, and these should be fun, especially uh, w- with where you've come from. So, what's the uh, most expensive pair of shoes that you purchased? Uh, it's like five hundred dollar uh, Lanvin shoes. Like they're they're not like a, a brand that had it flashy on it, you know. But it was just nice quality black suede shoes. Okay. What about the uh, most expensive meal out that you paid for? Uh, that possible is like $250 and that's probably the most I spent for like a person and, and I'll bring a, a date or a guest as well. So okay. we know the most expensive car, which is pretty sweet. Uh, what about the most expensive experience or vacation you've been on? Dude, I hate traveling ever since I moved to Austin. Austin's so <laughs> great. Why would I want to go to another place where the people are less cool? And if I meet them, it's like, I'm going to see them again anyway. Like I want to build my community here where there's so many incredible people and so I do travel occasionally for work, but I only travel if I get to stand on stage and tell people how to get a deal in seven days and they can take a challenge. And, and, and actually, we'll go through an exercise where they call homeowners and, and they'll actually get an appointment set. And, and when they do, I'll give them free deal machine. But, but that's really the only time I travel uh, and I am going to see my parents. It's a Southwest Airlines flight and it was $125. Okay, nice. Uh... What was a key lesson you learned from childhood? A, a key lesson I learned from childhood was when I was actually young, I was the youngest of two. Um, so I always wanted to do things faster, like do chores. And um, it's weird to think now I wanted to do chores for fun, but that gave me a sense of pride. I love, I love having goals and purpose. And I would cut the grass and I realized that I could sweep it with the broom or I could use my remote control car and I could actually you know, connect an electric motor with the fan behind the remote control car. And then I could drive that around to blow the grass off the sidewalk back into the grass. And my mom praised me for that. And she was like, 
you know, I think that you could actually do that for a living and you could be an engineer. It's called engineering when you put things together to solve a problem. And the lesson is like having a goal gives me purpose and praising people that you have relationships with, especially that may work for you. Or if you have kids, it's just not done enough. And it's so powerful. Awesome. What is the most fun that you've had with money? Racing. Absolutely. So this year I wanted to take things into my own hands because I was waiting around for Gary, my friend who invited me to that lemons race to go invite me again. And he just wasn't doing it. And I was like, well, I have a car to take this. And this was before I had the Ferrari. Um, so I actually spent, you know, $5,000 and I went to the Skip Barber racing school. It was a three-day school and it, it was um, in the Formula 4 car. So just like Formula 1, open cockpit, open wheel, but like way, way, way simplified down. So it just got the front wing and the back wing and you learn the basics of race car driving. And man, dude, that was just the most fun I think that I've spent was getting into this hobby. That's awesome. What's the craziest thing you've ever done to earn money? The, the, the most crazy thing uh, that I've ever done to earn money is like two days ago, I showed up to Webinar Jam and I told people about this update to the app we did. And we sold $70,000 of our, our Black Friday deal. It was like the year-long subscription to Deal Machine for 50% off. And it was so incredible. I felt like I didn't even deserve to be there because, you know, seven years in, our team is like kind of learned how to do marketing now. Um, and they had like 1,800 people sign up to be there. And I just showed up and got to be the host, which is like the easiest job in the world when all that work was front-loaded. That was just a crazy experience that... I'm still like kind of in shock about, you know, I, I know there's a lot of internet marketers that make, you know, huge sales with marketing funnels and stuff, but it's just not been how we've done things. You know, it's like our, our companies just spread word of mouth. We, we never had like marketing skills. And so that was the first time, definitely the biggest day, you know, that at webinar that we've ever had, or I've ever had. And I'm still kind of in shock about that. And, um, super thankful that, that that happened. So I woke up yesterday thinking it was Friday and I was like, <laughs> I, you know, it was just like that jarring to me, like going to bed thinking about what just happened. That's cool. What was your first job? My first job was at McDonald's. Again, I wanted to work in high school. My parents were like, we'll, we'll pay for you, your, your meals and stuff. You know, you don't need to work. But I was like, no, I want to, I want to learn how this sausage gets made literally. And, uh, that was a lot of fun. I actually had four friends that worked there too. And I will always remember that when I was cooking the meats, the top gets cooked at 425 degrees and the bottom is 375. And it takes a 10th of a pound patty to go from completely frozen to fully cooked in 38 seconds. And I thought, why on earth do I remember this? <laughs> so, so bizarre <laughs> and seemingly unimportant. But as like a, a business person, there you go. I'm a business person. I was like, <laughs> it's, because, it's because they're training was just so clear and that reiterated like, okay, if I'm going to actually build a company, my training needs to be that clear and that repeatable and communication is the most valuable thing in the world. When I graduated college, I was working on hard problems at Accenture as a software engineer. And my friend Danielle was in the communications department putting together PowerPoints. And I said something at dinner. I was like, you just put together PowerPoints. Like, isn't that so boring? But it was at the executive level. It was communicating to people that had very valuable time. And that was a skill I just didn't think was important back then that I do now, thanks to my McDonald's experience. And I know how important communication is. Do you remember how much you made at that job? 
yes, it was $6 an hour and I had just qualified after six months of work for a 25%, I'm sorry, 25 cent raise, but the minimum wage in Missouri at the exact same time went to 650. And so I made 50% more, but I was livid with McDonald's for making me the same wage as a new person just coming in. So it was so, yeah, yeah. I mean, it just, that really irked me. And uh, I should have been happy that I was just making, you know, more, but a little acknowledgement just goes a long way with me. I feel like something I've learned about myself and and probably with others too. What's a closely held belief that you once had that you recently changed? Hmm. Okay. So when I was growing up, we were actually Eastern Orthodox Christian, which is a ancient religion that's based on a ton of prayer and fasting. And our church service was like two hours every Sunday. And I would just have to eat no meat for, you know, 40 days straight before Easter. And my Catholic friends would eat meat, no meat on Fridays. And they would complain about that. And, and what's so funny was, um, you know, I'm not religious anymore, but I still had, you know, gone back to church with my parents if I'm, if I'm visiting them. And I would take so much pride in the discipline that that taught me that had to have made, you know, me who I am. So I kind of went through this phase of like, this was, you know, so difficult and I didn't like it to, um, diving deep into it and doing 30 minute prayers myself before bed. And then I decided, Oh, this isn't for me. And then now I've kind of gone full circle and returned back and just been like, wow, this whole experience has made me just such a disciplined person that comes into my business, into my health and fitness. And so that's been a recent like realization for me uh, that I had a belief and recently changed. That's cool. Thanks for sharing. What are final pieces of advice that you would give to somebody who's just starting out? So if you're just starting out, the path has been blazed before you. Unless you're so passionate about something that you don't even need anybody's advice and you know it'll work and you just work on it, then you, you should actually just reverse engineer like a simple business model. You know, it's exactly, you know, the business model that helped me get my very first real estate deal as an example has been done a million times. I mean, Jace, so many people on your podcast are real estate entrepreneurs, and I know that it's been done for many people. So um, I would say check out episode 65 of my podcast, how to get your first deal in seven days uh, of the Deal Machine podcast, if you guys are just starting out and wanting a map of a proven business model that's been done before. Awesome. Where can people find you or find more, find out more about you? The Deal Machine Podcast and on Instagram as DLECO. Awesome. That's day with a net worth of 17 plus million dollars. Thanks for coming on the show today. Thanks, Jace. I really appreciate it. Thanks for listening to the Millionaires Unveiled podcast with Jace Mattinson. For more stories, investment opportunities, and information, check out our website, millionairesunveiled.com. See you next time when you'll hear from another everyday millionaire.